just going through life, we know that there are dark sides of life. There is some pain that seems pointless and only a child of God can say, okay, Lord, I don't know the purpose of this pain, but I am going to give it purpose by saying that I enjoy whatever I'm going through right now with you on the cross and reparation for my own sins, which there are many, and <laughs> for the sins of the world, you know? Um, only a child of God can do that. Only a person with a spirit, supernatural outlook on life can do that. What's the real purpose of suffering in the world? How do we deal with difficult experiences in professional, personal, or community settings? How do we reconcile a loving God with a deeply flawed world? In today's episode, priest, campus minister, and pastor of the USC Caruso Catholic Center, Father Richard Sun Wu, explores the mystery of Christian suffering in the many moments of our everyday lives. Christ lived a temptation at every moment to lay down that cross. If you could imagine the voice of Satan saying, just put it down. At every horrific step where Christ could just put it down. And Christ telling himself, just one more. It's it's bone chilling when you think about like that whole process of saying like, well, why? Who was Christ thinking of with every step? Each and every one of us. Yeah, you. Yeah, he's thought about us. Christ shows us the true meaning of suffering by uniting ourselves to his cross for our sake and the sake of the world. We can discover the way to redeem pain and turn it into a living sacrifice to God. This is Living the Call. Father Richard Sun Wu, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to have you. It's great to be here. So I, I, just in the in the in the way in, I've already learned like three things about you. I didn't know you taught. Yeah. I yes. mean, I know you're involved with obviously with school and academics and all that, as you know, at USC. But I didn't realize you had been like a high school teacher. Yeah. So right after, um, so I went to the Seminary College, Saint John Seminary College, and I spent a, almost a year traveling abroad. And then what I um, one of my first jobs uh, was uh, teaching English mm. at uh, St. Bernard's. Did you study English? I did. I double majored in English and philosophy. Mm, nice. I was an English major for like four weeks. <laughs> well, because because I could I could write and uh -huh. you know I could speak pretty well, and I yeah, just always yeah. thought the languages and the arts. But what I didn't realize was just the amount of like uh, essays and writing that I'd need to do. Oh yeah, yeah. And and at least at the seminary, it was an easier major because we were constantly reading and writing anyway so was there a particular period or author that you just like gravitated to yeah i did my senior thesis on uh, dante nice yeah the divine comedy oh yeah 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 that was awesome a lot of people <laughs> know the uh the so it's uh Infer inferno a lot of people know right just there's something what is it about like the kind of like the dark stuff, right? Everybody, people who don't know about scripture yeah, know the book yeah. of Revelation, right? People who don't know about Dante know Inferno. They don't know Commedia <laughs> or uh, Purgatorio and uh, what's the last one? The uh, Paradiso. Paradiso, of course. Yeah. But um, what is it about that, you think, that people are just drawn to the kind of uh, maybe the dark stuff a little bit or at least curious? Well, I think I think people in general are tend to be more fatalistic. Hmm. And I think it just proves them... Not right, but it, it intrigues them what the end will be, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, that particular book, I think people take totally out of context because they're treating it like, like only one work when mm. it really should be read together to give you the full sense of what the, the whole journey of Dante was supposed to be. You know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, there 
of course, each book has its own intriguing parts, right? I mean, and in um inferno you see how dante treats his enemies and their church figures that are burning in hell and and things like that and yeah i mean you know but if you don't know why um it just kind of makes the whole thing kind of weird you know did you you, that image of inferno the one that i remember um one of the many that i remember is the kind of the people being named yeah. In hell, right? Yeah. Uh, Caiaphas and I think some of the Caesars and just a bunch of different people. And, you know, the imagery is striking, particularly the very end where like the, like Satan is fanning his wings and keeping himself frozen in that lake. And he's like chewing. I forget yeah. who he's chewing. The three betrayers. Yeah. So it's Judas Iscariot. It's um, Brutus. Mm. And... Um, yeah, Caiaphas was the guy who he was. I remember crucified to the to the ground, to mm. the floor of hell. Yeah, it was like just. I mean, such yeah, incredible horrific. illustration. You know, I mean, according to Dante, right? Um, the whole point is to go to to paradise, purgatorio. And what's interesting is that even then, in the ancient mind, they knew that the the spiritual journey was an, was a a downward ascent, right? So you had to go down to hell. But then something happens where you're reoriented and you are actually on the ascent to heaven. Hmm. And so you're not really ma- you're not making a left or a right turn. Just by going down into hell, you're already making the ascent you wow. know, to heaven. And and um, you know what's interesting about you know um, Purgatorio is that the people they're the exact same sins that you find in Inferno are in Purgatorio. Now what's the difference? Well, they're on their way to heaven. They are redeemed, as it were, but they're trying to work some stuff out. And they know that. And that's the main difference between the people in hell. The people in hell think that they're unjustly there. That's why they're screaming in pain. They're stabbing each other in the back. They're, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not paying for their sins. What they're doing is that they're, they're perpetuating their own sin. And how Dante visualized that was that for Caiaphas. He used, you know, you know, nailed to the ground. For others, they're, you know, um, being eaten alive, you know. Um, for others who are, um, you know, steeped in lust, you know, that they're just, it, they just can't stop copulating. Mm. But in Dante's hell, there is no release and satisfaction. So it's just, so it's just horrific where you're just in that constant just animalistic kind of thing but there's just no sense of end Mm. you know it's all consuming the other thing that's cool about dante at least well in inferno but and i don't recall in purgatorio and paradiso so you you have to tell us but is the hierarchical nature of things right the kind of like inverted hierarchy right whatever you would call that but there's like the 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 bulges right that he calls the rings the pockets of hell and how as you kind of descend it gets sort of more it's hard to imagine like worse than hell but yeah. like there's like layers of hell yeah yeah you know well people often forget that um even in chaos there's order right i mean when when scientists um look at explosions you know when we look at an explosion we're like oh man it's t- completely horrific but when forensic scientists go in there they can actually trace back to where it originated hmm you know, and there is evidence. So, I mean, what we would perceive to be chaos, there actually is order. And 
for Satan to function, there is a hierarchy there, you know, just like in a gang, right? I mean, you would think that, you know, in a, in a system of, uh, that's kind of steeped in violence, like how do people stay in line, hmm. you know? Well, maybe it's loyalty or maybe it's also pain and aggression, you know? And it, just like the mob had it, right? I mean, you had the, the, the capos and then you had everybody else, yeah, you know, and then that's the, right. the street thugs. The captains and, and... The captains and then you've got everybody else reporting to who, you hmm. know. Um, and, you know, th- what makes hell is that everyone's also looking out for themselves, hmm. right? So that's why The Sopranos, when you watch it, like everyone's getting capped, right? I mean, for it's sure. Just, everyone's dying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whenever I rewatch episodes of The Sopranos, I'm like, why isn't anybody calling the cops? I mean, people are being shot in broad daylight. It's just like... For, it's true. It's but you know crazy. what's also crazy about that? I've seen those um, – I've witnessed some things, not uh, you know mafia violence, but I've witnessed some things in my life just kind of on travel or ministry yeah. where you'll see something in broad daylight and people just are very unassuming about it. And yeah. frankly, the more populous the place, the more unassuming they tend to be. It's like it can be happening right in front of you like New York or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And people will just walk right by in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the easiest thing to do is to not get involved, mm-hmm. you know. But the cool thing about the whole idea of order within chaos, and it's true, right? You can look at uh, even ballistics too, you know, how people track down where the bullet come in and how did it come from and all this stuff within all this chaos, there is this kind of idea of of order. Yeah. Is it your sense, um, you know, does that hierarchy exist? We we know about it scripturally in in, in heaven, right? Yeah. St. Paul talks about- Choirs of angels. Choirs and, of angels, and he got taken up to the third heaven, and St. Thomas Aquinas talked about that. But what about purgatory? What's your sense of that? Of, of Is there any sense of hierarchy in, in purgatory? I'm, I, I don't know, purgatorio yeah. or purgatory itself. Yeah. What's your thought? Well, uh, um, well, in Dante's case, I mean, it was it wasn't much of a hierarchy per se, other than you know rings of the ascent to heaven, mm-hmm. right? And so these are the people that are working towards purging themselves of those past sins or of those you know like habits and whatnot, you know, before they enter into yeah. the Imperion. And so um, in in Purgatorio, it's less hierarchical. It's just more levels of purgation, right? And at that point, you're, um, it's like ma- it's like forging a sword at that point, right? Mm. I mean, it, it's less about hierarchy; it's more about process. Interesting. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. Do you are you are you of the mind that there is? I've heard different examples or theories, or uh, and even some saints who who've had mystical visions about how much purgatory hurts. Are you of the mind, to my knowledge, there's not like an official teaching on this, but to to your mind, is it, what kind of, what does it, what does it feel like to be in purgatory? What's it like? Is it a place to long for? Is it like, you see what I'm saying? Like, because you're on your way to heaven. Yeah. So you think, hey, good. Yeah. Yeah. But you're not there. Yeah. What do you think, what's your view of what that feels like or is like? You know, well, for me, I, I think pain without purpose is horrific. I mean, that's what makes torture diabolical, right? I mean, there's no purpose to it. They're just torturing you, you know. But I tend to look at purgatory like those with cancer going through chemo, right? There's a purpose to it. It sucks going through it, right? But there is health at the end of the road or there is remission at the end of the road. So there's some sense of what the pain is you're enduring. Like just like childbirth, right? I mean, I don't want to speak to it. I, ladies out there, I, I'm not to claim to know. 
I can only I've been imagine, in the room a couple times, right? I, <laughs> but I, I, I can only imagine that through the pain of childbirth <clears throat> is life. Yeah. You know? And for whatever reason, that process involves, you know, what we would perceive to be pain. Mm. You know? Um, I love that. Pain without purpose. I mean, that, and that is true. Frankly, that's, you know, what makes something decidedly Catholic, like the idea of mortification, yeah something solitary and can build you up, obviously under the yeah. right supervision and all that. But it's a pretty bizarre concept when you take that out of the Catholic realm, right? The idea of like, why would anybody... So like the idea of divorce, pain period is wrong in, from the kind of popular secular standpoint, right? Sure. And, and, and the Catholic view, to your point, which I hadn't heard, but very beautifully put, is the idea of like a pain with a purpose can be something that yeah. can be transformative, can be helpful. Well, well I mean, well, we take our cues from Christ. I mean, if you look at the the passion, if that were me, you know, I the first time I fell down with the cross, I would just say, kill me right here. Yeah. If you think about it, I mean, you know, a, the, there's a, um, a great saint whose name escapes me, wrote a beautiful meditation on the passion. And he said, um, Christ lived temptation at every moment to lay down that cross. You know, he said, if you could imagine the voice of Satan saying, mm. just put it down. At every horrific step where Christ could, he just put it down. And Christ telling himself, just one more. Hmm. It, it's, it's bone chilling when you think about, like, that whole process of saying, like, okay, and, well, why? You know? And this is what um, St. Jose Maria says. He says, you know, that who was Christ thinking of with every step? Each and every one of us. Yeah, you. Yeah, because he knows that if if he puts down that cross, if he falls down, right, and doesn't get up, he's thought about us. Mm. That's what makes that scene in uh, Passion yeah. of the Christ so compelling at the oh, very yeah. end when he's like, yeah. when he crawls toward the cross, and you're again, yeah. the total counterintuitive, the yeah. total. It's 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 like it's like Jesus Christ is like what every Navy SEAL like dares to be, right? That's right. <laughs> it's just I will not give up. When knocked down, I will get back That's up right. every time. You know, um, and it's just so beautiful. Like you know, my my favorite scene in in the whole movie of the Passion is when he does fall down and his mother reaches for him. You know. And they go through that whole scene of him falling down. And oh, she's like, know. you know, the gut-wrenching thing of like, God, a mother just being a mom and just saying, trying to... And it flashes back and she sees him when he was three or four, that yeah, part. Yeah, he falls oh. down and he picks her up. But what he says right after, I think it's the most beautiful thing. He picks the cross back up and without looking at her. And he says, you see, mother, I've already conquered the world. Amazing. Chills. I mean, gosh, you know, you're just like, oh, the other man. thing, the other thing that you I just know, want to cry. Absolutely. And I usually do when I watch that. There's a couple, there's a couple movies that predictably at a certain point will make me cry. Yeah. That scene is one in particular where um, the Blessed Mother sees in her mind the three or four year old Jesus just falling, like yeah. when he's playing and she sees him with that cross. Cause I know what that looks like and feels like as a father. And it's just like, you know, yeah. I usually cry there. The other one is the scene in It's a Wonderful Life when um, George Bailey's at the pharmacy and the and the pharmacist just, his son just died. Do you ever watch this movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And so, and he's like all upset and he whacks him for something, but it's not really about him. And it's just that scene always gets to me for whatever reason. Yeah. The other thing that I think about, though, with what you just said, Father, is that um, an another movie 
one that gets, I think, look, it gets a bad rap for a number of probably good reasons, but it also gets a bad rap for no good reason. Mm. And that is The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese's movie. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because at the very end of our lives, the whole reason the Hail Mary is, you know, to ask in the Blessed Mother to pray for us at the moment of our death is because that's the devil's last chance. Yeah. Right? It's like he's, he, whatever volume he's at in your life, he just jacks that sucker up towards the end. And that's why we need those graces and those protections. And in that movie, at the very end, just to, you know, to your point, Jesus yeah. has been beaten, spat on, crucified. I mean, he's there dying on the cross and the tempter comes to him in the form of that little girl and says like, you've done so much. Yeah. You've done so much. What else could you possibly do? Yeah. Let me take you down from there. And it just, it's, it's like, what kind of, I mean, talk about ratcheting it up to turbo that, oh, yeah. the, that the devil does at that moment, because it sounds so reasonable. It's like, you're right. I've already even done it. He's not even say, don't do it. Yeah. He's not even say, don't be crucified. You've already been crucified. It's good. Now's yeah. the time. Now's the time. That's the other thing that I think about. It's kind of funny, you know, um, college kids, you know, they're, they're always interested in like, you know, the dark stuff, as you said, right? And they're like, I get questions about exorcisms all the time. You know, and they think like, oh, all, all, all priests do is just go out and do exorcisms, right? Which isn't true. Like, you have to be called to that ministry. And I am not called to that ministry. Let me tell you that. Although, um, Father, from what I hear is people who say that are the ones that the bishop calls and says, it's you. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, I mean, yeah. I mean, there are other people that are, yeah. like, being trained right now for that, which is crazy. Um, and God bless them. But um, I was talking to an exorcist, and I said, you know, I mean— well, I told him, I told him, you know, I, when I see all this freaky stuff, like I get afraid, you know, and I don't want any of that stuff to happen to me. Right. And he goes, what makes you think you're so safe? That stuff really hasn't happened to me. And he, and he goes, you know, I think that's what most people make the mistake. They think that they're insignificant, that Satan doesn't want anything to do with them, you know? And he's just like, no. He's like, have you thought about the fact that you haven't seen or experienced this because God's keeping it all that God's holding Satan back. I mean, do you think that Satan's just like, oh, you're insignificant, I don't really need you? He's like, no, he wants everybody. He wants every soul, you know? And I just, that thought just wow. like, okay, makes, makes me think that maybe I need to be more faithful, more prayerful, you know? And um, I was actually talking to a student the other day about it. And he's like, well, what's it like? And I said, okay, imagine this. You know, there's this retaining wall holding back all this water. And, you know, as we're saying this, Louisiana's going through probably some of the most horrific hurricanes, you know. Imagine God plugging up all these holes so so that doesn't break. You know, this dam doesn't break. And we're sitting at at God's foot, just smiling, playing, and he's smiling back at us. Hmm. And we just smile back and we just look at the plug and pull it out and look back up and smile. And God's just like... Dude, what are you, what are you doing? doing? Like, could you just just sit there or like just don't, you know, but what are we going to do? We we don't know any better. We're just like playing around. We just like, oh, this is kind of cool. Oh, look, water, mm. you know, and, and I just can't imagine how frustrating it is for our guardian angels who are just like fighting back demons. Literally like, slain. Literally, yeah. yeah. Like every day is an MMA fight, right? <laughs> and we're just like... You yeah. know, letting the guys cheat. We're just like, hey, come on. Hey. Come on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, two against one. Come on. I mean, we're just like, okay, we're not the ones fighting, of course, but can you imagine? So I, the, the, the battles 
you know, so um, that's one of my greatest yeah. my greatest looking forward to things of heaven. Even though me <laughs> me saying this is uh, God willing, if we if I get there, uh, I will hopefully find this ridiculous. But nevertheless, I, I think it now is one of my greatest things is meeting my garden angel. Mm. Just so like you know, I would be too ashamed because yeah. he'll look totally beat up. <laughs> he will just like be all busted up and <laughs> bloody nose, bloody nose, and he's just like finally. Say, you know, Padre Pio, God bless him, you know, um, it was so funny. Um, you know, he used to be able to to speak to angels and stuff, and he was getting beat up by demons all the time. Constantly. And so there's this account where, you know, he was in the middle of the church praying a prayer of Thanksgiving after Mass, and these four demons just jumped him and just wailed on him, you know? And Padre Pio said he, he saw this, you know, a heavenly angel cowering behind a tower, you know, a pillar, Said after he was beat up, he got up and he scolded the angel and goes, "What are you doing? <laughs> you just sitting there and watching this yeah, happen." Why the, and, he, and he said that was the first and only time that Padre Pio scolded an angel. Wow! Can you imagine that? I mean, he's going to find out why that was the case. You know, exactly. he, I'm sure he found out why <laughs> yeah, at some but, point. But that's so crazy, though. I mean, if anybody's going to do it, it might be him. Yeah. Did you ever? Did you ever study demonology or anything like that at all? I mean, I know you're not called to it, but did that ever? Was that ever a subject matter? Um, I thought about it, but then I thought, you know, like I, by me studying this, it's kind of like I'm signaling something. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's why I'm like, no, I don't want to study yeah. it like formally, you know, yeah. I'll hear about things here or there. I may ask a question or two, but I'm like, you know, it, I always say this to every exorcist. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you guys just go out there like looking for a fight. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just like, well, luckily the fight comes to us. Like we don't do anything. <laughs> it's true. But the guys that I've the, the the exorcists that I've always met have been very unassuming is the wrong word, but almost like kind of like a little jovial and like, oh yeah, like I, I just do this and I've never been scared. And I guess like, <laughs> and I never really thought about doing it. And I got a call from the bishop and he says, I want you to, I was like, it just seems like they're buying like a loaf of bread or something at Seriously. the store. And I think you need to have a little bit of that kind of detachment. I'm with you. Like for me, it's like, I, I will do, if I watch a movie on exorcism or anything like that, it's like a two to three day latency period before I can feel normal again after that. Oh, I bet. I don't think that the exorcists have that for the most part. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine what their preparation process is and like what the downtime looks like after they've, and, and, and we all know that exorcism is not a one and done. It's not like Hollywood where like it's a final battle and you're out there, you know, doing your thing and it's over, it's over. I mean- these things happen over a long period yeah. of time, yeah. like multiple exorcisms. Um, but, but I, you know, it's funny about that. I, you know, I always love seeing that meme that says everybody, you know, likes to make fun of the Catholic Church or crap on it until a demon shows up. Until a demon shows up, <laughs> demon shows up. That's so true. <laughs> it's so true. They're not running to Calvary Chapel for no. for that uh, for that moment. No, and even from what I hear from exorcists, it's like they get calls from Protestant pastors who are like, "Oh yeah, I can't do anything here." For sure, you know. Yeah, so well, that's like, the that's that's the. I mean, that's the 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 authority of the bishop and you know everything else. I, I mean, there's so much scriptural evidence for it as well. I know you're a devotee of. I'm oh, talking so about the hierarchy, right? The hierarchy, yeah, I for mean, it sure. I, I heard a story once. I don't, you know, I, I forget who it was. It may have been something that was actually an article or something, yeah. but about an exorcist who was traveling or something and went to a diocese and got kind of roped in to do this deliverance thing at the end. 
But, and he, you know, he spoke to the demon. He kind of forgot where he was. I guess, I don't know if he traveled mm. very often or whatever, but the demon was like, you got nothing on me. He's like, I can't. And he remembered he didn't have permission yeah. from the bishop in that diocese. And he like, he called the, you know, rec, you know, he called the bishop's office and whatever and got permission, then went back in and was like, you know, how about now? I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you we'll, know, we'll bring into our conversation with Dante. I mean, he's being guided through hell, you know, by Virgil. That's right. You know, and well, there's this door that Virgil couldn't open, mm. and it, and an angel had to be sent from heaven down to open it. <laughs> wow. You know, and because everything happens for a reason. That's right. And even when they enter the gates of hell, that sign that says, you know, eternal love created me. You know that even in hell, the command of God rings true. That there's a door that even the virtues couldn't open. You know, just secular virtues. That's right. And it was the angel of God that had to thrust open those gates, and then they continued on their journey. And so. and also that the 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 powers of of darkness and hell also need to abide by the laws of God. Just because they're separated from God doesn't mean that they don't have to abide by His laws, right? The, no. the, the in Scripture, the idea of every knee must bend on the earth and under the earth, right? Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. at, at the pro- proclamation of Jesus's name, because yeah. like you you still have to abide by the created order. It's because yeah. you're separated from God. Yeah. I don't want to end up there. No, That's I, no. not a place to be. No, me neither. Me neither. I, I'd, I'd rather be in heaven. Was I know you're a devotee of Jose Maria Escriva. I was actually waiting for how long it would take for you to bring up uh, St. Jose Maria Escriva, and you brought him up like five minutes ago. So yeah. whatever, whatever period of time that was, <laughs> about 20 minutes. Um, was he, d- d- what was his view of, of the afterlife? I don't know, like heaven, hell, purgatory, that kind of thing. Was he big on any of these? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you know, one of his basic... Uh, reminders of the world is that we, uh, what he called divine filiation, and it wasn't really what he called it. it, it it's it's just a theological term that the church adopts and believes um, that we are sons and daughters of God, you know, and because we are sons and daughters, we have a particular mission, you know, as his children. So as his sons and daughters, we have a very supernatural outlook on the world, you know. So that even though the secular world may see some things, oh, it's just the rigors of life, it's just the vicissitudes, we just kind of go through the motions, right? He says, a daughter and a son of God does not look upon those everyday ordinary things. That's why he's called the saint of the, of the, of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. We see a supernatural way of, of consecrating that to God. Our work, our sufferings, our mortifications, everything is geared towards um, sanctification, of not just ourselves, our work, but our brothers and sisters in the world, so that we can ultimately um, be in heaven. You know, so you know, for him, you know, everything was about heaven. Mm-hmm. Everything was about heaven. Everything was about you know, holiness is possible now. You know, he said in Latin, "Nuncet hodie," mm-hmm. now and today. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and uh, yeah, I was actually preparing for confession last week, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I was just reading some of his writings, and he was just like, he said, don't, he said, um, not quoting it directly, but the gist was like, don't be ashamed of your sins. Or don't talk to me about being, feeling ashamed. And he goes, you are a coward, mm. you know? And he's just like, you lack the courage to make the necessary changes in your life. Wow. You know, and I was like, dang. Um, Throw down the gauntlet. Yeah, I'm just like, okay. And that's why I love him, because he's so direct. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't beat around the bush. He's not asking you, oh, like, oh, what's your condition? Oh, what happened? He's not asking for the backstory. He's just like, ultimately, you lack courage. 
And that's true. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that blows me away about the idea of, you know, when you pass away and being there in front of the throne of Christ, it's like you imagine this, you're there in front of truth itself. Mm Mm-hmm. There is no reason to say, well, the reason I did this was because of X or my childhood created X situation. Like all of that doesn't matter because A, he knows it. B, it has no relation on on what's happening right there. And I'm just blown away by that. But that is a hallmark of a good confession is like. To, to my mind, it's my opinion, having never been at plenty, but not ever, uh, you know, given absolution. <laughs> but my impression is coming in and just saying, here are the things that I've done yeah. and not trying to go, well, but, you know, my sister really upset me. So I just, you know, that's why I did it. Or oh, what, yeah. this idea of like trying to rationalize and do whatever, mm. it's unnecessary, right? I mean, it's like you, you're talking directly to God. He knows all that stuff, right? Yeah. Through the priest. And so I, I totally get that level of directness, although maybe I'm shocking to somebody who is in the confessional hearing it. I don't know. You know well, I mean, I don't see what Mary said that our confession should be concise, direct, and simple. No beating around the bush, you know. Um, because, I mean, we would have had that conversation about the justifications, about the story with God as we're preparing for the sacrament, you yeah. know. Um, and... You know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And um, yeah, he's just an amazing, amazing saint and an inspiration for me. And, and, and well, I, I was going to say, if anybody hasn't read The Way or The Forge or any of San, uh, Jose Mariesco's work, you just have to follow your Facebook page. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you go to Mass every day, you get the yeah. Bible in three years. Well, yeah. you get all the works of Jose Maria Escrivá. <laughs> just follow your your uh, Facebook page. Um, well, they're just daily, like, points and so forth. And um you know, like the way the furrow and the forge, you know, Jose Maria spent hours in front of the tabernacle and he would synthesize what the subject of his prayer was within those few lines. And so, you know, you know, people who are, you know, um, either an Opus Dei or part of the work or just regular faithful who find that inspiration, it, that's what it's meant to be, to inspire, to spark prayer of our own conversation and dialogue with God. And in a and in a way, because of its simplicity, you you kind of fill in the gaps, right? You fill in the the lines. His his um those little sayings are very brief, very concise, oftentimes very direct, mm-hmm. and they don't say everything that he's thinking. They just say enough, and the rest of it is kind of like, at least in my mind, yeah. or for me, up to the person. And you make you make of it, you yeah. know what what uh what God wants you to make of it, but through those kind of you know yeah, yeah. inspirations. Yeah, I mean, our conversation this morning, it's like we're throwing out you know, these points and we're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And we're just kind of, you know, and, and and that's what prayer really is. You know, it's um, having that conversation with God and using some, because sometimes we don't know what to say, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I've, you know, floundered into prayer, you know, just exhausted. Like, oh yeah, and I'm here. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to think because I'm brain dead right now after yeah. like a full day yeah. and I just need a little inspiration and a, a quote from St. Jose Maria through his prayer. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And I start talking to him. It also makes sense of some of the criticism that he got when he was alive, right? So I, one of the a theologian, uh, Urza von Balthasar, Hans, I think, Urza von Balthasar, who did a lot of like really deep theological writing, mm-hmm. was a big critic of his because mm-hmm. he thought that his spirituality was like, it's like a Boy Scout manual is what he, one of his quotes. Mm. There wasn't a lot of critics, but he was one very notable one. Yeah. 
But what I think he missed is he was looking at that again from the perspective of maybe a systematic theology like he was part of where it broke down everything and tried to explain everything, where Jose Maria was like the throw out one sentence and you're thinking about it for three weeks. Yeah. And it's like, and you're going, wait a minute. And like, you've just found layer and layer and layer upon it, right? Just so yeah. his thing was more about maybe just getting you that initial mm. thought maybe. Yeah. Well, also a lot has to be said about, you know, simple and popular piety, you know? Um, it takes a tremendous amount of of mental capacity and intention and orientation to be reminded of the, of, of the simple things of piety. Like... Um, you know, at noontime, praying the Angelus. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many times, like, we just blow past noon? We're just like, oh, we're busy doing something. As important it may be, <clears throat> but this is where St. Jose Maria is like, oh, his orientation is from, you know, from well to well, from water to water in a desert. And seeing prayer as being, um, you know, like, if we're wandering in the desert, we would have to be oriented towards water, you know, and looking forward to those moments. And for him, it was just finding those those wellsprings of prayer, and even the small, simple prayers. And and you know, his thing is, you know, we're we're children of God, and we have to if unless we communicate with God with the simplicity of children, you know, as direct as they might be, you know, um, then then who are we? And and yeah, there are plenty of critics even now, you know, about you know the whole spirituality of of the work and but i don't get that what is that about for real is it about the mortification is it about what what, what is yeah. the issue I, I know that there's some historical stuff about the nationalists and the republicans back then in spain and yeah. there was some yeah. stuff like that but what what do you think the issue is because i've heard this in a lot of sectors and from super you know catholic progressive yeah. liberally places yeah. to conservative ones yeah. a, a reticence around Op i think he's amazing i love opus Dei. i love the spirituality love him yeah. i just don't get it what is that well he's challenging to whoever is interacting with his life or what he's communicating like john paul ii for example i think he had a deep affinity for Opus Dei because of the fact that, I mean, his own life, right? And people are just like, I remember in the 80s and 90s, people are just totally dumping, in the early 2000s, dumping on John Paul II. Oh, he's just so, you know, conservative and thick-headed, and he's just this, you know, Polish guy and blah, blah, blah. And you see all the stereotypes and bigotry coming out from, sure. you know, everywhere. But I have to remind people... You know, and this is what I said. This is a man who studied theology under Nazi occupation. I mean, he, he went to seminary in a freaking stone quarry. He was ordained secretly in his bishop's office. I'm like, I don't know. Given those conditions, I think his fortitude and his virtues were proven strong. I mean, and here we are, these university professors in their ivory towers, just contemplating, theologizing. They're like, oh, yeah, John Paul II is just worthless. You know, what kind of contribution? I'm like, what kind of contribution have you made, brother? <laughs> like, I'm just like, Amen. I, I mean, are you out there in the trenches? And same thing with St. Jose Maria. I mean, this is a man who, you, you just read the history of, of the work in Opus Dei. I mean, unless this was, this was authentically divinely inspired by God, it could have been crushed by anything. And to survive through civil war... It's absolutely insane. It is. You know, so just the survivability is a testament. And not just that it survived. So it's not like, 
you know, the works just like, oh, just 12 priests and like a few lay people that are huddled around in some apartment in, in Madrid. You know, here they are just writing their books and, you know, praying the rosaries. That's fine. There are like hundreds of thousands of, of members of the work. There are. And it's just like, my God, I mean, and the work that people are doing um, is absolutely awesome. I mean, in the, our own L.A. Archdiocese, you know, um, the LA, you know they've, they've, they have these new social media features on people, you know. And one was um, this, this fire chief, you know, and he's a member of the work. Um, I don't know if he's like, you know, totally open about it. I don't know if I'm outing him. I don't know. But I, I know he's a member of the work. And here he is. He's, he's, he's a competent fire captain just doing his job. Yeah. And he does it well. And he believes that his work, as he does it well, he's, he's consecrating it to God every day as a source of holiness, you know. Um, and he's making a difference, not just the fact that he's a firefighter, but because of the fact that he is doing what other people just won't, you know. And, and you know, we talked about hell and purgatory of like the, the difference would be, you know, pain with a purpose. Just going through life, we know that there are dark sides of life. You know, you and I both know that very, very well. No one has to tell us twice. There is some pain that seems pointless. And only a child of God can say, okay, Lord, I don't know the purpose of this pain, but I am going to give it purpose by saying that I enjoy whatever I'm going through right now with you on the cross and reparation for my own sins which there are many, <laughs> for the sins of the world, you know. Um, only a child of God can do that. Only a person with a spirit, supernatural outlook on life can do that. Because normal people will just, you know, bitch and complain, complain about, about it. It's just like, my God, it's just... Lost opportunity. Lost opportunity. And only a child of God will... I mean, we might complain in the beginning, but at some point we'll just stop and say, okay, Lord, let your will be done. And think how powerful that prayer is, how devastating to the devil that must be to hear that kind of a, I accept these sufferings willingly and I unite them to your cross for my own sins and for the sins of the world. Are you kidding me? If that's done out of human, that's devastating to the devil. You want to keep the devil away. That's a good way to do it. Oh, totally. You know, and people are praying for Afghanistan. People are praying for all sorts of different things. But imagine if you denied yourself something willfully, you know, you're in line at Starbucks or whatever, and you're like, normally I get this crazy drink, right? Frappuccino, whatever, blah, 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 with all the fixings. What if you were just to get a black coffee? You're like, oh, I hate black coffee. That's precisely the point. Yeah. What if on this day you chose it at least once, but you gave it a purpose? You're not just like, oh, I'm doing this for better health. You know, some people choose mortifications, like, because it benefits them, right? They're like, oh... I'm like intermittent fasting. I'm like, God, that's so selfish, right? It's just like, oh, I do yoga for you, not for me. I'm like, this is insane. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. I know exactly what you mean, though. But imagine if you were to offer that up prayerfully and say, God, I, I, this is what I willfully choose. This is the one time where I get to choose the cross. Hmm. I mean, Satan probably just like up in arms, you know? And it's just, can you imagine that? And um, and that's what fascinates me even about the 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 children of Fatima. You know, by the way, Netflix has a beautiful movie about it. Oh, the, is know? that the, the, the new one? The, the, has Harvey yeah. Keitel in it? Yeah. 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 Dude, every time I see Harvey Keitel, I only think of Pulp Fiction. 
Pulp Fiction. No, yeah, I, no, I go. No matter what character he's playing, I'm like, Mr. That's wolf. The wolf. <laughs> Mr. That's wolf. That's the wolf talking to that nun. Yeah, I was super into Harvey Keitel for a period of time. I yeah. went and did all his uh, filmography. I haven't seen it though. The Fatima. I, I started oh, watching it, but then I wasn't able to finish it. Oh no, it, it's um, it's a beautiful film. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's it's the three children, you know, and their their mortification. And it wasn't that her blessed mother told them to do it. It was they felt compelled to do it. Um, you know, they, they tied this kind of burlap rope around their waist, you know, for sinners, you know, and even I think Asinta had was had to get her leg chopped off or something, some kind of disease or whatever. Um, and she didn't ask for anesthesia and the whole time she kept on saying for sinners, for wow. sinners, for sinners. And she was like nine years old. Now you're probably thinking, okay, well, they're brainwashed or whatever, but. Or no, they're I mean, ignorant peasants. Or they're ignorant peasants. They're out there and the shepherds or whatever, you know. Yeah, of course, the intellectuals are out there just sipping on their tea and, you know, <laughs> eating those little sandwiches. With and going, pinky. Well, oh, the, the, the poor peasants, you know. Um, but this is what, but they're, they're saints. And um, even our blessed mother had to say, don't wear it to sleep. Hmm. Okay, it's good that, okay, I, it's great that you want to suffer on behalf of the world, you know. And people are saying that, you know, those sufferings of those kids held back the wars can you believe that of three course kids. i totally believe that three shepherd kids praying the rosary on their knees you know two mortifications i mean it, it'll drive any modern cardinal up the wall you know who who do not have a spiritual outlook on life you mm-hmm. know who are just like religious politicians mm-hmm. those are the things where they're just like oh let's ban that that's right you know, it's just insane. But well, I mean, that's as sad as there is. But I, but like I think guy. that there is a really important point to make. And kind of if you go up to the very top of the decision making tree mm-hmm. at a moment, it's what you said. There is pain in the world. Yeah. What is pain? Is pain to be avoided? Is it a kind of a very Eastern Buddhist kind of outlook where it's like pain should be sort of removed from our lives? Mm-hmm. Or is it you know, uh, pain should be avoided and there's nothing good about it. Like there's a moment where you make a decision about what sorrow, pain, challenges are. Yeah. And the Christian understanding is that there can be redemptive suffering, that there can be pain with purpose, what you just said. Oh, yeah. And I think depending on which tributary you go off to from that initial decision, Mm -hmm. you can end up pretty far afield of certain things in either direction, but you can end up pretty far afield um, and I think that that happens. I think that the world is very suspicious. I think that's the reason Escriba is, is often like looked at with a you know squinty eye is the idea of mortification. Period. Mm-hmm. It's not the only saint who ever mortified. There's like thousands of them that did. Yeah. But he's so modern, right? You can still look at a YouTube video and see Saint Jose Maria Escriba preaching. Yeah. And so I think that it's like, oh, that's the guy who whipped himself and self. And a lot of this stuff is like Da Vinci Code and whatever else, mm-hmm. but. But just the concept of mm. accepting pain, accepting difficulty willingly, even if it's tiny, even if it's yeah. the no frappuccino today, yeah. for someone else is a, generally speaking, foreign concept to 2021 American popular culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it, what they fear is that things have a clear purpose to them. You know, like a few months ago, I mean, I was having lunch at the, at the village sitting next to these, you know, these four girls. And, um, you know, they all got their, their food. And, and one of the girls just asked to, for a bite of the other ones, you know. And apparently the situation was like she gave a meat or she was trying to be vegan. 
But then she was like eating like the chicken off some of the other people's plates, right? And the girls just totally ridiculed her, mm. you know? And they were just like, you know, why, why you should just give it up. You know, if this is the way you're going to behave, just, just give it up. Right. Now, now there's two ways you can look at that. You could say, okay, that's the truth, right? You just, obviously, you don't want to really be vegan. I tend to look at the other way and I said, God, what a missed opportunity for them to be friends and not ridicule her in public because they were speaking very loudly. Like, it wasn't like I was pressing my ear and going, sure, this intrigue. Yeah. It's like, no, they're pretty loud about the ridicule for this one girl. And I thought, my God. Why couldn't they support her even amidst the struggle? Right. I don't understand that. Hmm. You know? And it's just like, and, and, and this is where I think society is more about obsessed with the mic drop than actually helping humanity. You know? And, and, and that's where I see it, right? It, it's, it's people don't want to, people are scandalized with people who have a clear sense of purpose and direction. Yeah. That's true. You know, and so when they see suffering, they're like, oh, you're either anti-intellectual or people are like, oh, that's so, you know. I remember for Yeah, I mean, I remember for a period like early on in the seminary, people were just like suspicious if you were like praying the rosary. Really? Yeah, they were just like, oh, I mean, hopefully by now you're learning theology and you're, you know, X, Y, and Z and oh my God, this is like so weird for me to hear, you know? Thank God it's changed. I mean, St. John's right now is a different St. John's from what I went through, but it was like so different for me to hear that. Um, but, you know, there's just always this sense of, because I know more, like I, I'm, I'm better, you know? And therefore kind of piety and religiosity decrease on a on a proportional level yeah. to the most, the more intellectual you become. But, but it's so egoistic because I, I think there are plenty of intellectuals out there who have a correct and lovely piety, you know? Um, and I always tend to look at it like, no matter who you are, whenever you're sitting at your mother's table, you are that little boy. You could have multiple PhDs, you could be Dr. So-and-so, but when you're eating at your mom's table and you're eating your childhood food, like it or not, you are that little boy. Hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> and when we are praying our rosary, no matter how many PhDs we've got, we are that little child sitting at, at Mary's table, you know? And what I love is that how John Paul II said that the mysteries of the rosary are a gift to the church because they are our blessed mother's memories of her son hmm. that she's inviting us into. Well, that's you know? cool. It's, yeah. like, it's like sitting at Mary's uh, you know, feet and she's showing us a photo album of what life was like with Jesus. And she's taking us through the good stuff, through the terrible stuff, and also through the glories, you know? And you don't have to be an intellectual to appreciate that. Mm. You don't have to be like, you know, multiple PhDs. And, yeah. and you know, I'm not knocking education. You know, St. Jose Maria was like, an hour of study is an hour of prayer. And every priest of Opus Dei right now has at least a PhD in something or other, mm -hmm. right? So he is definitely not an intellectual. You know, I, I, I just know that in, in some of the circles that I've been, especially working in university life, there is this hubris in thinking that as an intellectual, I have to reject popular piety. I definitely have come across this. You know, and, and, and it's sad, yeah. you know? 
And that's what's happening in American universities. I don't know what else, where else is happening. Luckily at USC, what's really awesome this year is that we're actually gathering the Catholic professors, you know. Um, so one of these nights in September, we have Catholic professor night where they get to just to come and have Sunday supper and just be with the students. And the students know that they're Catholic. Yeah. So we're not asking them to talk about their faith or... They're just showing up. Yeah. Well, you're in the business school. You're in the price school of public policy. You are, you know, wherever, you know, just show up. And, and the kids, you know, we had a, like a mini one where three professors showed up and the kids were just shocked, you know. Because they weren't expecting to see them. They're like, you? Yeah. And, and, and this is what... I don't know if it's good or, or bad, right? Because you're just like, either A, I haven't been really living my faith in the classroom, so people just assume I'm just this godless, <laughs> you know, whatever. Or you're this awesome professor, and there's this whole other life to you that I did not know, right? It's kind of like, a, you know, probably you remember when you became a deacon, right? Or you decided to enter into formation. People are like, Charlie, you? Oh, I get that yeah. to this day. Yeah, and they're like... But you're so normal. I'm like, what? We're all like wacky, wacky right. crackpots. Like, right. <laughs> it's just insane, right? Yeah. But you know, you're breaking through the barriers of like so many layers of misinformation. You know. Yeah. And it's I've just had insane. people like literally put their head in their hand at the <laughs> at the at the knowledge that I'm a deacon. Yeah. But usually, that when that happens is in some like way secular setting, in so, mm-hmm. like on the. Google campus or something yeah. after a business meeting and so be like, what? Yeah. You know, it's just now to your point, the initial response is, oh, that's cool. And yeah, whatever. But then I wonder, well, shouldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of integrity. Am I, am I demonstrating, am I living my diaconate mm-hmm. in that Google meeting to the point where somebody shouldn't be as shocked like i i do have that question of myself yeah Yeah. well i mean i think every professional kind of goes through that that thought right well could you be both highly effective at your job and at the same time be a deacon right yeah you know but does your profession require you to like bring in jesus in every conversation yeah. Well, I mean, no, but it should be appear. It should be prevalent in your ethics. Absolutely, it should be visible. You should. It, it, I mean, that's true, and and it does come up a lot more than uh, certainly since I've been ordained. You know, these moments where I'll you know take somebody aside or, or just say, "Hey, this is something I can't go toward," and you know, we've had conversations like that, mm. and and usually those have been good you yeah. know where there'll be some fruit that's born out of that and sometimes it 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 hasn't been sometimes and and there's also like you know things that have gone uh you know missing invitations to certain things you know the sure. lack of knowledge of something that I should have known about because something was withheld i mean so there's like those things you come across too and going oh well maybe somebody was trying to not impose something on me or whatever right and you come across it later yeah um so that does that does happen yeah and and again, we have to look at it as supernatural and saying, okay, Lord, I will endure this mini humiliation with the, your humiliation on the cross, which is nothing compared to what little bit of ego bruising that I'm going through right now, you know? Um, yeah, it, ha- it happens a lot. And this is what St. Jose Maria was like saying that it should be from our naturalness and our joy. Mm-hmm. 
you know. So we should we shouldn't be creating awkward conversations as Christians. You know, in the middle of a business meeting, like praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. You right. know, or like end all. Do you of validate our- parking? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> you know, it's like these non sequiturs, right? But it's like, but why or how proficient you are in your job, how excellent that you're striving to be, and at the same time your joy. People will question you and say, "Why are you so happy?" And, and that's an opportunity naturally for you to share the reason for your faith and your joy, right? Amen. Um, and or people are like, "Hey, you know, God, you're such you're great at what you do." You know, what would you recommend for someone like me who's like struggling? You know, and maybe that's a time where you could say, "Well, um, you know, I believe that this is where God has called me, and this is my work," and. If I spend most of my day doing this, for me, it's it's spiritual, you know? And this is what I offer to God every day, you know? And then they're like, oh, God, I didn't even think about it that way, you know? Maybe that might be helpful for you to strive, sure. you know, to achieve a little bit more excellence than just to say, oh, I want to get that paycheck. Yeah. Or I want to get that raise, you know? Um, it's so utilitarian sometimes, you know? I mean, I was talking to a group of students about... Um, getting a job and you know we're trying to encourage our, our kids to write thank you notes you know and this one kid got hired at, at a big company because he wrote a thank you note to every person who um interviewed him he didn't get the job you know uh, he didn't know he got the job he just but why they hired him was because of that handwritten thank you note it wasn't a text it wasn't an email it was a handwritten thank you note and they said this guy embodies gratitude and what we're all about, you know? Amazing. That little things communicate. Yeah, but you should have seen, like, the heads because, you know, we're talking about through, you know, getting dressed. We talked about, you know, sure. and their heads were just all buried. But once we talked about that, their eyes just perked up, you know? And I had to tell them. I'm like, this has to be real, you know? Like, you just perked up because you're like, ooh, I could add this to my toolkit. Right, it's, it's like, a hack. No. Yeah, it's a hack. It's like, no, you're a hack if you approach thank gratitude this way. You know, it has to it's be like, authentic. Yeah, it's got to be authentic. Because chances are, if if there's no real person behind the thank you note, if you're not living it, they're gonna tell. They're gonna know. Yeah. And then you you just you just ruined your whole reputation as being a manipulator or a liar and a person who can't be trusted. You know what I found in my in my own life is that to your point, 80, 90% of how people learn about your devotion and your interior life is by by the way that you behave doing things that are not explicitly religious. Oh, yeah. There are, however, in that remaining 10%, some things that are explicit that I've always found very interesting because of their simplicity. For mm-hmm. example, when somebody asked me to make a big decision, right, in a secular context, mm-hmm. be like, yeah, you know what, I need to, I need to pray on that. Like, just that, yeah. right? Because A, it's true, yeah. but B, it's like, you know, it's arresting in certain contexts. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I have, I've had lunches and dinners for a living, basically, my whole career, right? Um, <laughs> and doing a sign of the cross before I eat. I, you, you know, I don't, I don't say anything auditory. People can't hear what I'm saying, but I just do the sign of the cross. I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations about that with mm-hmm. people. Most times after the lunch. After the lunch, it'll be like, you know, the lunch is done and people say like, you know, last week when we got together, you know, I noticed you did that. Like, what is that about? Like, I had no idea, right? Yeah. So it's some, it's, it's the little things too. It's not this, 
you know, to your point, sitting down and giving a sermon at the end of a meeting, which is out of context and yeah. kind of weird. Yeah. It's the little things too. And I think that's also, you know, I think of St. Jose Maria Escrivá with the sort of the simplicity of like the universal call to holiness, washing the dishes, mowing the lawn, doing whatever it is that you do, making it an offering to God. St. Therese, you know, the little things, the little Mother thing. Teresa. I mean, there, there's there's such a beauty about that, the little things. Yeah. You know? And people often dismiss that. Yeah. How are college kids, do they see this? Do they see these things? I mean, like, you've been doing this for a little while. Like, yeah. are, are these, ultimately everything is about having people have a, an encounter with Jesus Christ. But like, how we cooperate with that is by sometimes laying some breadcrumbs, right? Are, are these, do these work with your kind of 21st century college kid, right? In terms of getting them interested around the faith? Like, what, what, what have you found? There's no trick. There's no magic bullet. Um, I think the popular notion out there in America and also in American secular society is to think that there's a superwoman, superman out there, and all I need to do is hire him. You know, even parishes. I know plenty of pastors who are just like, oh, we got to turn our youth program around. I know. I got to hire this amazing youth minister. I'm like, dude, that's the wrong approach, you know? Um, but they've got this obsession, right? And for us working with college kids, there's no magic bullet. Um, it really just takes authentic presence. Because kids, I mean, number one, most of them are pretty socially awkward. They just don't want to admit it, you know? Which is why if you, if you look at any, any person, it doesn't have to be a child or a college student, have them walk across the room, you know, in a place where they don't necessarily know anybody. Most people take out their phone and pretend like they're searching or like, oh, where do we say to meet? Oh, you know exactly what's by the exit. You just showed up five minutes early and they're not there yet. But it's this uncomfortableness of what, what do we do, right? So everybody's uncomfortable, you know, mostly socially awkward. And we just have to have enough gusto to sit with them through it. Like, I'm a priest, you know. I wear a collar, like, 99% of the time, right? I can't hide from the fact that I'm a priest, you know. It makes me think twice about where I go, though. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, you, um, you know, if you're always walking into Amazon, like, Locker every day, they're like, what are you buying? You know, well, a bunch of needless things, uh, you know, <laughs> but at the same time. Um, but college students know that, okay, you're a priest, right? Um, some of the more bolder ones will test you. They'll say some of the most outlandish things, you know? To see if you get a response out oh, of yeah, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they'll just, like, you know, totally dismiss you, you know? They're like, oh, well, you know, I believe in abortion, so, um, yeah, well, there's that. I don't think you want to talk to me now, do you? And they'll test you. Okay, whether or not they actually are pro-abortion is the question. And we could explore that at a later time, you know, with them on a one-on-one which most kids are not really pro-abortion. It's just a popular thing for others to qualify them to say that you're cool. You're for women's rights, you know, or whatever it may be. It's completely absurd, but I mean, that's a litmus test. You know, what else am I going to say? You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I don't believe in traditional marriage. You know, even though they're the product of a traditional, it's just this irony, right? I mean, it's just like... Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like some kid walking around going, yeah, death to America. I'm like, hello, 
Yeah, <laughs> cri- criticizing the foundation from which you sprung. Yeah, exactly. In both cases. Or what empowered you to Correct. be who you are today, you know? Right. And so, I mean, so they're going to say some things to a priest oftentimes to kind of like shock you. Am I acceptable to you? And just consistency, right? I mean, uh, it, but then, you know, there, we have some priests out there that are just like, okay, I'm a warrior for truth and justice. So uh, blah, 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 blah. And you're going to fight them tooth and nail. I'm like, okay. Is a battleground the line at Target? I mean, I'm just, right. <laughs> just throwing it out there, you know right. I mean? Like, are you going to die on that hill in Target in front of everybody? You're just going to be known as the priest, the angry priest that's shouting out your stuff. I'm like, no. Why don't you just, you know, invite them to talk to you more about it? You know, and, and just it, recognize who you are and just yeah. be like, hey, um, right now, you know, I'm getting, you know, my laundry stuff at Target. And you're getting, from what I see, a bunch of your, some stuff at Target. Like, hey, if you want to talk about this more, my church is literally across the street. You know, I'm more, I'm happy to talk to you. I want to listen to you. I want to get to know who you are, you know, because I find it intriguing. You know, I think you're an interesting person. Now, 99% of the time, they won't take you up on it because you'll freak them out. You know, they think you're going to take them some layer and torture (laughs) them and like brainwash them. With the rest of the Opus Day. There's this stuff. It's like, no, I mean, it's not. It's just you want to get to know them. And, um, but there are some who yeah. who do take up that call. And our campus ministers are great. Our focus missionaries are wonderful. They go out there and they do what I can't, which is to normalize people's interaction. You know, if if you want to gaslight something, send a priest. I mean, I'm serious, especially on the college campus, right? I mean, it's just if you want to gaslight something, just send a priest, you know. Um, but send a student. Send, you know, a focus missionary. Send one of our campus ministers, a religious sister, you know, um, a professor, you know, Hmm. who's Catholic. And then the whole tenor of the conversation kind of tends to calm down. Totally. Yeah. But once you like throw in a priest, it's like crazy. But even in what you described, though, I mean, I view that exchange, you know, fictional or example of it, whatever it was, as a definition of pastoral, though. I mean, pastoral is like recognizing, not that you're a shepherd, but recognizing that particular sheep right there. The idea of meeting somebody where they are and then walking them the rest of the way, right, requires you have to know who they are, engage with them. I think people err, generally speaking, on either side of that, right? It's You might err too much on the meet them where they are, and all you do is meet them where they are. I, I oftentimes use the analogy of the desert, which we've already brought up a couple times here. If you just meet somebody where they are in the desert, how's it going, buddy? Give them a glass of water. See ya. Like, well, they're still in the desert and you're going to be dead soon, right? So it's, here's the water. By the way, if you go down five miles and make a right, there's a little oasis right there. You might want to check it out, right? Yeah. That's it. Or the air on the other side, which is how, how did you get stuck out here in the desert? Are you stupid? What's wrong with you? Don't you know deserts are places where people die? Yeah. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? It's like you can err on either side of that equation. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you you, you know some some priests are having a bad day, and it's like I get of it. Of course, I mean you're you're told left and right you're irrelevant, you're a pedophile or whatever it is, Poof. and you're just this target of like bunch of societal angst, you know, you know, and you're just like, well, gosh, you know, um, you know, even your own people sometimes, you know, when I was out in a in a you know suburban parish, you know, well-intended people would come up to me. 
and saying, you know, Father, like, I'd be happy, you know, if my son became a priest, but I really want him to consider being a real estate agent or a lawyer first. And they say it to you with a smile on their face. And I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. My first vocation is your consolation prize. And you're saying that to me in what you think is a very respectful way. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? Yeah, I'm just like, well, you know, but it just appalls me to think like, this is how sometimes even our Catholic parishioners view religious life and priesthood. It's the God's consolation prize, you know? And I said, okay, if that is how we're treating the vocation that God has called, can you imagine all the other vocations then? I mean, how are we treating like marriage? You know, like how are we treating all the other things? It's like, my God, like it's, I think we have only ourselves to blame for that kind of weird attitude. For sure. You know, and, you know, it's just like um, even the diaconate, right? You know, I mean, you're out there hustling, you're out there struggling, you're you're trying to be the best deacon you could be, you know? And then there are those that are just like, oh, I am retired now. You know, it's like, I'm always around the church anyway. I got nothing else better to do. So might as well get ordained. I'm like, dude, as good intended as that is, we need actual workers in the vineyard, not just some dude with leftover time that's like, oh, I made my money. And I'm just going to chill. And I finally have permission to do good in the world. I'm just like, dude, no, you should be doing good the whole time, dude. My, my deacon, my deacon brother, <laughs> shout out to Deacon Glenn Heffern and my deacon brother, Glenn. He's a comedian of a rare order. And he always, you know, he, he makes a joke about that. He's like, you know, Lord, now that I've, you know, just basically given the world everything that I have, and I'm just a completely used bag of bones, I'd like to offer those to you, <laughs> to you know, at the, the very church. end, to the church, it's to the like, people of God. On. Yeah. Yeah. And, so that's and, why I, I applaud deacons. You know, they're active. And, sure. You know, just really trying to crush it out in the world and in the church and saying, look, this is what we're, I'm, I'm called to do. And, and that's where Holy Mother Church helps a lot is like you look at the wisdom of the way that the church brings up, well, permanent deacons in, in this case is like, you know, 35 years old is as young as you can be, the youngest you can be at ordination for the permanent diaconate. Yeah. But I think the average age of our deacons may be twice that, right? Yeah. So it's, it's yeah, there's like a whole missing lifetime there where God could be calling. Yeah. And we're putting him off, right? Yeah. Or there's just so much distraction. You know? and, and God's calling priests out there and religious sisters who are highly proficient in what they do. Like, don't wait till you're fired. Don't wait till you're disgruntled by your job. If you feel the call of God and God is calling you, like respond. Yeah, amen. And respond generously. Amen. At the top of your game, you know? Amen. Like, gosh, can you imagine if like, you know, Kobe Bryant was just like, you know. Yeah. Or or even at the top of his game, he was just like, you know what? I'm entering the formation for diaconate. People are like, what? Oh, yeah. Right? Or to have like some CEO... That's what I'm always talking company, about. You know? I'm always talking about the same thing, Father. Yeah. Just imagine like Elon Musk, like I'm discerning a call to the diaconate. What? W- wait a minute, but you're like, who's going to put people in space or who's going to make a better battery or whatever? And I, like, I think most people be like, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? It's like, I, you know, but the, but the potential, you know, influence and, uh, and other good that, that could come from that. That's what I'm always about, like evangelizing the rich and famous. It's like, you know, if anybody needs it, that's, you know, we need, we need to remember them. We need to remember people who have a lot of material yeah. success and power because oftentimes, ironically, they're kind of neglected from a spiritual standpoint. People are like, oh, he's got everything. What does he need for me? 
It's you like, know. that might be what he needs from yeah. you. You know, there's a conventional Franciscan brother mm-hmm. who left his job as like a, as a VP of Bank of America in California. He was like really high up there, you know, and he left to be a Franciscan brother, not even a priest. You know, people were like, oh, you should get ordained. And he's like, no, God is calling me to be a brother, you know? I mean, God, can you imagine that? You know? Huge. Like it's, it's, it's it, a witness. Yeah. It's totally a witness. And, and, and that's how I think people kind of dismiss the little things or even the big ones. You know, one of our focus missionaries left recently to enter the formation to the priesthood, you know, for his religious community, Milas Christi, mm. you know, um, Owen. So for everyone out there, pray for Owen. You know, he's a, he's a great guy. Um, people are just like, gosh, you know, what a waste. Yeah. You know, I thought, not a waste. I mean, the exact opposite. Yeah, he's, and, running to, he's running to glory. You know, he's, he's running for the throne and um, not for his throne, but, you know, to the throne of God. And, um, and that's something that's what's missing, I think, in people's lives. Again, the scandal of the clarity of purpose of people's lives. You know, I mean, people have encountered people who are just in these dark places all the time, even priests and religious. You know, the priests who are angry that they're priests. You know, we have a whole generation of priests that continue to be ordained because somewhere some theologian told them, oh, the church is going to change its rules on marriage and you could finally get married. It's still happening today. Yeah. And then they find out it's a lie because the church won't do that and they can't do that. And they get bitter. And then they get bitter and then they start like not wearing the collar. And then they start acting like, don't call me father. I'm just Joe. And then they start wearing Tommy Muhammad and just like hanging out with people. And there's no offense with Tommy. I love Tommy Muhammad clothes. I mean, you know, but it's just like. Nothing like like a Hawaiian shirt. Oh yeah. And khakis and stuff. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, these are what the people are used to seeing. Angry father who just can't be bothered by the sacraments. Angry because he has to celebrate the mass. Angry because he's got to hear confessions. Angry because he's got to go and visit the youth. Angry because whatever it may be. And this is like, wow. You know, like a lot of my ministry at USC is to try to give a positive experience to young people who came from parishes where the priests could, don't even know who they are and could care less who they are. In five years, I've only received two emails from parish priests telling me that a great kid is coming to college and please take care of them and their family. Two priests in five years. It's crazy. I had a similar response when I was going through formation because my pastor was very involved in my formation. And he came to like the things that... Well, that wasn't really a special thing. Your pastor didn't have to come to that. And I was like, yeah, but he wanted <laughs> yeah, I mean, to like show my, to show his support, support. For my, and, and to be visible. And the, the, the formators of the program just had never seen that. They're yeah. like, you know, he's just supposed to be there at the cathedral when you get ordained. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you're making the point. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, even our young people are just like, I only see a priest when I'm in trouble. And I was like, wow. I mean, I. We need to change that. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, can you imagine if I spent my entire vocation where all I'm dealing with is like entering in the, in the mess of people? I mean, there is that aspect of it. Don't get me wrong. Sure. But like, if you're having a great day, like, why wouldn't you call your pastor to show that good news? Well, this is how God's blessed me, you know? Of course. But it's just like, no, we're going to like only call you when, you know, have the worst news possible. I'm like, my God, 
mean, if you spend 24-7 in that kind of environment, like, and that's why I think we need people to really share their lives with, with priests. And, Amen. You know, and, and um, both the good and the bad, you know, and you get to see them as people. And it's just really, you know, be a source of hope and inspiration too, you know. Well, Father, I can tell you, I'm for, count me among the many who uh, are very happy to know that you're out there. Um, at USC and, you know, talking to young people and being that representation and being that witness of the priesthood. Um, and, you know, I'm very happy that that's happening. And I think that's a blessing to to, to all uh, young people, those who interact with you, but also those who, by extension, know that priests like you are out there doing that. Oh, there are lots of them. Yeah. No, and, I know and that's what I mean, gosh, you know, the, the young group of priests right now, they're just fantastic. I mean, really, I mean, just, you know, I, I, I could quit. In the next few years, don't, knowing that, that, that they're going to do an amazing job. No, I mean, they're just amazing. You know, so, um, you know, we've got great priests, great young priests, you know. Um, you know, Father Peter Saucedo. Yeah. You know, he's he's awesome. You know, he's and he's now the Associate Vocation Director of the Archdiocese. I really can't think of a better guy, you know. Um, humble, straight shooter. Nice. But loves the Lord. Beautiful. Um, just amazing priests, you know. We've got... A, group of amazing priests studying in Rome right now, you know, Amen. just bringing back, like, you know, studying their their butts off, but at the same time, like, really wonderful, wonderful men. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm just, yeah, I think Archbishop's doing a, an amazing job, like, you know, building for the future. I do, too. And know? he, by the way, he does listen to the show, just so you know. Oh, okay. So you, I'm, I can I'm, say whatever I want, Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just say whatever you want. Um, yeah, he actually surprised me one time when he, when he said something about this. I was like, whoa. He's actually like, You're listening? Why? No. Um, I agree with you. Um, and I'm happy that there's a whole cadre of others. And I think it's a great example. And definitely, we need to all pray for continued vocations to the priesthood. And not just the vocation, because I do believe that the call always comes. But it's our distraction and ability to hear that we need to pray for that keep those things kind of at bay and so people can respond to that yeah. to that call. Yeah. Father, an hour goes fast. We're actually oh, okay. past an hour. Oh, man. So we're going to wrap we're going to wrap up before we do and we get to our wait what segment. Um, you know, I want you to tell folks what, you know, what they should know, how to follow the Caruso Center, how to follow you, how to know what's going on, how to get involved. Yeah. Anything you want to share? Um, yeah, you know, follow us on social media. It's um uh, on Instagram at Catholic underscore Trojan. Um, you find us on Facebook um, as we'll, well. We'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah. The only thing we don't use is Twitter, but. Okay. Probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And just follow the ministry, pray for us. And um, yeah, I mean, we're just excited. Um, yeah. Awesome. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing place to be. And, you know, our campus ministry staff is just amazing. Um, and one of the, the beautiful, one of the most beautiful little chapels you've you've ever seen, I think, the one at Caruso. Oh yeah, no, yeah. it's really pretty, and but like all pretty little things, it's expensive to keep <laughs> maintained. You know? So another reason for people to follow and uh, give of their time, treasure, and talent to yeah. all of the things that you need. All right, Father, you ready to play? Wait, what? What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Here we go. Question number one, uh-huh. Father, what Korean invention mm-hmm. has created more good in the world? K-pop. Or Korean tacos? I'd say K-pop. Because although I do love a Korean taco, from the places that I've had them that are popular, I can't mention any names, I might get sued. 
it's done horribly. So, so you're, yeah, you're gonna go with K-pop. Actually, if I, I don't know K-pop, there was a number of uh, K. I don't know their names, but there's a number of K- K-pop uh, artists, singers, band members who are Catholic. I, oh yeah, I, uh, yeah. I researched a little bit of that, but um, okay, very good. Question number one. All right, number two. Which of these we didn't actually talk about cigars, although you and I uh, do fancy the occasional good cigar. So, um, which of these, Father, is false? Okay. Which of these is false about tobacco and the Catholic Church? Number one. On January 30th, 1642, Pope Urban VIII banned tobacco in the Diocese of Seville under penalty of excommunication lette sententiae. For those who don't know, that means you get excommunicated from the church just by the act of doing the thing. Nobody has to tell you. Okay, so that's number one. Pope Urban VIII banned tobacco in that diocese. Number two, St. Teresa of Avila, the great mystic, St. Philip Neri, the saint of joy, and St. Joseph Cupertino, known as the flying saint for his levitation and bilocation, all favored snuff and or cigars. Hmm. Or number three, Benedict XV smoked the occasional Marlboro Red. Which of those is false? I would say my gut intuition says all of them are false. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. good. We, we, I actually haven't gotten to the point where I do trick questions on the show. Okay. <laughs> so There actually is only one of those that is false. Really? Yes, and it is number three. It wasn't Benedict XV. Benedict XV actually died a couple of years before Marble was invented yeah. uh, in 1922. He's, it's actually his successor to the name of Benedict. Believe it or not, Benedict XVI, oh. our own Benedict XVI, occasionally has a Marlboro Red. So there you go. And it is true that St. Teresa of Avila, St. Philip Neri, all of them were tobacco users, snuff or cigars. And uh, Urban VIII, who had his own issues, did ban tobacco in the Diocese of Seville. Seville because apparently the rector of, uh, of some uh, you know, place, a seminary or something, complained that people were using snuff and tobacco and chewing it and sp- spitting everywhere. And so he oh complained to the Pope and the Pope issued a, uh, this excommunication. Uh, or sorry, a people a bull called mm. Cum Ecclesiae in 1642. So there you go. Hopefully they're not doing it in church. No, they were doing it in church at the time. Yeah, he says. Uh, but I don't think they were spitting in cups, right? I mean, they're probably not like back then on the floor. It says it, from from the bull itself. It says. Um, uh, while they're performing their services in the choir, at the altar, or while they were listening to the Mass, the Divine Offices, they were at the same time with great irreverence taking tobacco and with <laughs> and with fetid excrements sullying the altar, holy places, and pavements of the churches of that diocese. Some priests apparently had gone so far as to place their snuff boxes on the altar while saying Mass. Oh my God! 1642. So there you go. Okay, that's excessive. All right, very good. Last question, Father. All right. Finally, and there's always a time machine question. There's always a time machine question, (laughs) Father. Okay, this one has a little bit of a Hollywood twist. Okay. So you're able to go back in time a decade, Mm -hmm. and you're going to advise Roland Joffe, who's the the director of There Be Dragons, Mm -hmm. the 2011 historical epic war drama film that documents the life of Jose Maria Escriba. Mm -hmm. Now... You like Charlie Cox, who is the actor that played Jose Maria in the film, but you believe rightly that the role should go to a Hispanic rather than an Englishman like Cox. Mm. Who do you recommend to Joffe should be cast for the role? In two thousand ten years ago, huh? Ten years ago. I would say um, 
then he would have to be Latino, right? Since Jose Maria Escrivá was Hispanic. Was Hispanic. Yeah. I would say... Um, doesn't have to be a Spaniard, per se. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Um, maybe Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia. Yeah, he'd be about the right age for yeah. maybe an older Jose Maria. An older, you know. But see, and that's what's hard because you're going through like these like waves of history, mm-hmm. you know. True, in that movie. Um, yeah. So you're, you're, you're I'm just trying to find like who would be like a good... You want to hear mine? Yeah. Oscar Isaac, the guy from uh, Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Interesting. He could kind of be in the middle he there. He could. He could do young. He could, might be. They might be able to age him up he a could, little bit. But his hair's a little bit too curly. Yeah, true. You know, they would have to straighten it somehow. And yeah, wigs and stuff. They something. can They can figure it out. Yeah. They can make spaceships. Yeah. They can make his hair straight. You know who I was thinking about? Who? The actor who played Richie Valens' older brother. Richie Valens' older brother. Yeah, in, in the movie La Bamba. Oh, I don't... Oh, uh... I forgot his name. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking he about. He was on NYPD he, Blue. But he would, be, he would be way older now, no? Oh, no, I mean, like, now. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean... Back then. Back then. Yeah, what is his name? I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah, too. you know? Yeah. That was one of the... That was one of... We talked about this. One of the great offenses to uh, Latino-ness is that Richie Valens was, is Filipino. They didn't cast... A, they couldn't find one Mexican dude to play that role. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, well, thanks for playing uh, Wait What Father. Really appreciate that. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. God bless you on your ministries and all the great work that you're doing uh, and that, you know, the Lord continue to prosper everything that you're up to. Thank you for your priesthood as well. Always want to make sure to do that. And thank you for being a guest on Living the Call. No, thank you for having me. And uh, God bless you and your ministry. Uh, Not just yours, but also your wife's as well. You know, Sophie's a a great, great ministry. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And for those of you out there, remember to subscribe, follow the show, tell friends and family about it. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.